Welcome to episode 237 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Sunday 9th of February 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. The Spokesman Cycling Podcast is proudly internationalist. We had an urban planner from San Francisco on the previous show, and in a forthcoming episode, I interview South African bicycle activist and academic Jogu Morgan. But this focus on speaking to interesting folks from around the world often means I'm guilty of neglecting interesting folks local to me. I'm Carlton Reed, speaking to you from my hometown of Newcastle. And on today's show, I go for a bike ride in Northumberland with a cyclist very well known in the north-east of England. Peter Harrison lives about a mile away from me. And when I go on club rides, that's not that often, but it's with his club, the Gosforth Road Club. Peter has also been staging races in Northumberland for many years, and he's the founder and organiser of the Cyclone Festival of Cycling, a challenge ride-based weekend of cycling that has now been going for 14 years. Peter is also an industry veteran. He was Shimano Man for many years, and he owns a Newcastle bike shop now. On our bike ride, following part of the route of the cyclone, we discuss all of this and much more. Peter, we're standing outside the Falcons, the rugby ground, and we're actually outside. You've, you've travelled here in a car. I'm not going to hold that against you, Peter. Uh, but you've got a sponsored car, and I, I'll, I'll mention your sponsor, so they get a mention here. So it's sponsored by Wingrove Motor Company. And then a big panel on the, on the side there says the Cyclone Festival of cycling. So Peter, how can you get a car? Well, I don't actually get it for free to be to begin with. Let's put it that way. But I do get it at a discounted rate. Um, the, That's right. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the car is supplied because I need it for the event. And the event that I created 14 years ago, um, out of a, a request from Newcastle City Council to put on city centre racing, which I'd done for South Tyneside Council, 14 um, years, bloody yeah, yeah, hell. Yeah, 2006, I put on a city centre cycle race um, for South Tyneside Council um, called the Jolie Grand Prix. And that morphed then into um, the cyclone where after I approached um, approached Northern Rock to see if they were interested in putting on, me putting on an event that was a combination of, the idea I had was a combination of um, events for or rides for um, non-competitive people, plus competitive races, which I was already putting on the Beaumont Trophy um, and also creating the city centre crit. So that, that's where it started from 2000, 2006 was just the criterium. 2007 was the first cyclone. So this year it'll be the, um, the 14th cyclone. And it starts, this is why we're at the Falcons, it starts and finishes here. Because I've done this uh, at least two or three times perhaps even four times out of those 14. So you start here, and how many people do you get starting here? Well, we get, it varies between about two and 4,000. Um, what what, the idea that I had when I created it was, I, I sort of had the idea of looking at the Great North Run and thinking, right, I want people to ride their bikes instead of running, but I'm not going to just give them one distance to do and everybody doing the same thing. So I created four different distances that all go out on the same route and then peel off at different places. Um, and so all abilities, all ages, um, all levels of fitness could take part in it. 
Well, unlike Sega, something like the Great North Run, where, where you've only got the one distance. So I'll say it with my kids. So kids can do it. You know, little, well, certainly seven, eight-year-olds can, can Well, do it. interesting you say that because the 34-mile ride, the youngest person ever to do the 34-mile ride was four years old, um, young Jake Parker. Um, so we've had um, we've had some very young kids do it, and the oldest, of course, to do the 106 was 92. Or today, it's 92. Is that you, Peter? No, 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 not quite. I'm getting there, but I'm not quite. Um, so yeah, so different distances. I get, originally there was three distances, and then I took it up to four distances. Um, of um, and for this year we've got 34 miles, 65 miles, 93 miles, and 160. 100, 108 miles, but it's, I always stress, it's not a race, um, we, we don't give positions, um, it's out, people out to enjoy themselves for the day, um, the only caveat as opposed to some other events or some running events is you're not allowed to wear fancy dress, um, because I don't want people in the wilds of Northumberland dressed as a gorilla um, having to be rescued. Let's let's go from there then, because people who don't know the wilds of Northumberland, when you say the wilds of Northumberland, you mean the wilds of Northumberland. It can get pretty ropey out there, and you're in you're in pretty pristine countryside with not a lot of cars around, which is a huge attraction, of course. So describe the route and describe how remote it can get for the guys doing the. Well, the, the well, right. If if we take the the, the hundred and eight mile route, we're heading out from from Newcastle from the Falcons, and we're going up. Um, out through Dinnington, up through the, 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 the towards Ponteland, but then heading up through Walton. Once you get up to Walton and up, you're up to Bolham, you're starting to get Bolham Lake, you're starting to get out in the countryside. Once you're past there, then you're off through Netherwitten, um, down towards Rothbury, through Rothbury. So you're getting that little bit more into the country, uh, some spectacular scenery, um, Cragside, um, um, of course, where um, you know a very famous um, place, um, and then we you head off towards Alwinton. By this time, of course, you're up into the Cheviots. Um, you you're right up, um, really getting into some remote countryside. From there, you're heading over towards. Um, I'm just got to think about this here. <laughs> 14 years, Peter, come on. I know that, I know. I know the road so well. I know so many roads. I'm trying to think where I am. Um, but you, you, you're up from Alwynton, and then you're over towards um, towards Elsen, through Elsen, and then Elsen over towards Otterburn, um, over all the rangers, um, the army rangers. And then you're up into the Kielder Forest, um, eventually dropping down towards Humshoff, um, over the Tyne, and then back down... Um, towards Stamfordham and Stamfordham um, well before that of course you've got the, the last little sting in the tail I put on this one they've already done a heck of a lot of climbing but once you get to Stamfordham or just before Stamfordham you've got the Riles um, which are notorious in, in racing circles as well as they're, they're killer little they're little climbs but they're killer well it's a, it's a one point it's a 1.3 mile climb and the middle section of it is 33%. And evidently, I get called a lot of choice names um, on that particular, yeah, that particular part of the route. But um, three of the four rides converge and go back up the, um, the, the, the rails. The, the shortest route, the 34-miler, doesn't um, go up there. Um, we, we keep the families and kids away from there. It's more rolling the way that they go. So they've got a gentler ride. We've got feed stations um, situated in village halls around the um, the whole of the route, um, and then there are some unofficial ones, such as the one that um, at, at Walton, where the, the the school bakes cakes and, and everything else. They do an unofficial one, and they normally make quite a bit of money for the for the school each year just doing that. I just allow them to do what they want. Um, so th there's plenty of places to stop around all of the routes. There's plenty of um, well, the scenery is very good, but yes, it can get. It can be beautiful and sunny and warm down here at the farm. Let's let's go. Yeah, yeah, and and then we get once we get up into the wilds. Because what what time of the year is it? Well, well, it's it's the end of June, um, so it has been known for it to be 
beautiful and sunny down at the Falcons, and then actually hailstoning up around the, 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 into the Cheviots and the oh, yeah. at Keeler. Um, so riders are always warned, and it's all in the um, the, the advice and instructions um, for people taking part, making sure that they've got a, a roadworthy bike, that they're properly dressed, that and that they're doing a ride that's they're doing the rides within their capability, so that the we, we don't get people getting into real distress. Hopefully, and and that, that's what happens. But of course, we do have um, um, ambulances stationed at all, all the different feed stations in case of any emergencies. We do have paramedics uh, going round in cars. We've got service vehicles from Shimano going round in case of any mechanicals. And we also have the, the NEG, the National Escort Group, which are motorcycle outriders who basically patrol the whole route and they make sure that the um, that everybody is safe and obeying the rules of the road and, and if there are any difficulties can report back and then we're all linked up by um, radio comms back to event HQ So you don't ride it? <laughs> You've uh, never ridden it I'm assuming I, I, I've ridden every one of the routes yeah, of course, yeah, but, so not, but not, 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 not on the day no no, no, no. I, my, my weekend starts, well, obviously starts weeks before, um, but we start on the Friday night with the family ride down on the Tyne, the Tyne Six Bridges, starting and finishing down near the Usburn. Um, rides of 10 and a half miles and, and 15 and a half miles for kids and families just to enjoy themselves. It's all, all off-road. Um, when I say off-road, it's actually the Sustrans route, so they're traffic-free. Yeah. And we get very young families taking part. Um, and we also, and people who are just real novices. So, like the London to Brighton and rides like that, this is something that probably a lot of people, this is their one big ride of the year. Yeah, for a lot of people it is. Um, I mean, but we do get people who take part in a number of these different, I call them challenges, I don't call them sporties, I don't like the word, I think it's too elitist. But we, we call them challenge rides. And yes, some of them make it the one big ride of the year, particularly the families and kids um, making it. And of course, Where some- are we going, Peter, before we, we're gonna go right, okay? Um, some of the kids- We're on the Pontelan Road here. Gonna go past the airport. Oh, this is this. This is this part of the route. It is. Well, it's part of the route coming back in. Coming back in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the. So we, we start off on the Friday night, as I say, with the, the family rides. Then the Saturday, the four different rides that I've been talking about. Um, and um, and then on the Sunday, we have. Um, races, um, for. Some of the top riders, in fact, some of the top riders in the world. Uh, I mean, for example, in 2011, Bradley Wiggins won the, the Beaumont Trophy when it was, when it was actually the National Road Race Championships. And Lizzie Armistead, Lizzie Dining, as she is now, she actually she won the women's race. And in 2018, both the Beaumont and the, the Curlew Cup, as you call it, were the men's and women's national championships. Um, and it was won, the men's event was won by um, Connor Swift, Ben Swift's cousin. Are these, are these Gosford, is, is the Beaumont, is that part of the Gosford? Well, well, the Beaumont Trophy is, is yes, it, it's, it's owned by the Gosford Throw Club, of which I'm chairman. And it's been, it's the longest, longest running road race in the UK. Um, it, was, it was created in 1952. Um, by um, and the trophy was awarded or given to the Gosford Road Club by a guy called Rex Beaumont who had a, a cycle wholesalers in Newcastle and it's it's been running now for well this will be the 69th year every year every year and it'd be no break and I've been putting it on for the past 43 years so it's been it, it's a uh, very well established road race um 
and as I say, we've had some of the top, the top riders in the world riding, Wiggins, Cavendish, even going back years ago, people like Malcolm Elliott won, won it. Um, um, the, the person who's won it the most, actually, is a guy called Ray Weatherall, who's a Northeast lad, and Ray won it five times in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And um, he, Ray rode for GB, and he rode the milk race and everything else. So it's... It, it's all, in fact, the very first year it was run, it was won by um, a guy called Stan Blair. Now, Stan Blair was a professional for Viking Cycles, um, and he won it. And it's, in those days, the race actually started and finished in Gosforth Park um, and came out. You wouldn't believe it could do it now, but actually came up Gosforth High Street and out into the wilds from, from, from there. And that was, of course, the early 50s very few cars about. When there was also a lot of conflict between British Cycling and the Road Time Trials Council. Well, 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 no, no. Hi there. That's a tandem that's gone past. Yeah. Um, um, The British Cycling Federation was formed in 1959 um, as a... it was, it split up, it had been the old um, British League of Ra- Racing Cyclists, BLRC. And they, they, they sort of split away from the NCU, who were the time trialling, because the NCU didn't want open road races in the UK. So for the first, it would be the first seven years at the Beaumont run, it was actually run under BLRC rules. So that, that event was basically smack bang in the middle of that particular conflict. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and then, of course, in 59, British, the British Signing Federation was formed. I actually became a member of British Cycling um, in 1961, so two years after it was formed, and I've been a member ever since. So, so let's go into that long history, Peter. Because I, I know I take the mick out of you when uh, you're at events and stuff. And I say, you know, you were there in the, the bone shaker days and stuff. But you have been around a long time. So 61, being a BC member. And what about a Gosforth Road Club member? Well, that was the year I joined the Gosforth Road Club. Yeah, I joined the, I joined the Gosforth Road Club. It was about the April of 1961. And I'm, I'm going to date you here. How old were you? Well, I was, well, I was 14 when I joined. And why did you join? What is that a family thing? Uh, no, no. Um, I was I was already at, at King School in, in, in Tynemouth. Played rugby. Was quite. Because you're, you're not from Newcastle, Peter. No, I'm from Edinburgh. Exactly. So how, let's go backwards to Edinburgh. So why why is a Scot in Newcastle at this time? Right. Well, what happened was, um, I was born just after the last war um, in Edinburgh, 42 Kirkhill Drive. I still remember the address. Um, and my father was a captain in the Royal Artillery in the last war. He got demobbed in 1946 um, when my mother and he got married. My father was working, got a job working for Usher's Brewery in Edinburgh um, and became a brewer there. He then got offered a job working um, as head brewer at um, Robert Jukes, which is now on Sandyford Road, is that's actually now now, now flats there now, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so we came down from Edinburgh in the early fifties, and I'd I'd worn a kilt the whole of my young life until we came to, to Newcastle. In fact, the first year we were in Newcastle, I was sent to Cragside Primary School wearing a kilt. So it made a man of me. <laughs> so, so anyway, we were, then I went to King's and there was a crowd of us at King's actually and some of the, the friends I had in Gosworth by this time. And when you, we heard about the, the cycling club, which was actually based in the old conservative club rooms um, or the conservative party rooms at, at, at South Gosworth. And uh, so we went along, all had pretty inexpensive bikes. 
I think mine came from Northern Motors, a second-hand road bike. And because I was playing rugby in the winter and doing stuff, that, that took care of that. But there was no sporting stuff to do in the summer because I wasn't really into, into cricket. Um, and at Kings at the time, there wasn't athletics. So we joined, we joined the Gosford Road Club and I got immediately hooked. Um, in fact, I've still got some school reports where my PE teachers, knowing that I was pretty sporty, sort of lamented the fact that I wanted to r race bikes as opposed to take up um, any form of athletics because I was a reasonable runner as well. Um, so, yeah, it went from there, age of 14. You were, so you joined the club to race? Well, no, to go out on club runs. It was a social thing. It was something to do on a Sunday. Because um, this, in this... 1961 you're basically this is when cycling is absolutely dying a death cycling is you know we had dutch levels of cycling in 1949 by 1969 1970 you've got the two percent one percent we've got now so it was dying a death so you were going no, against... no 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 i disagree it wasn't dying a death then in fact clubs like the gosford road club were very vibrant because it was something for kids to do on it on a Sunday and for all the people to do on a Sunday because it was there was very little cycling done on the Saturday it was always on a Sunday in your Sunday club ride and I mean we used to be out all day on a Sunday at the age of 15 I was doing sort of 120 miles every every Sunday with a club and how many how many people are going out on the runs how many's in the club right well in, in those days there was about about 30 to 40 in the club from as far back as I remember um, yes, it was a racing club. That's why it was called the Gosforth Road Club. It was actually a spin-off from the, um, the Ridley Cycling Club because clubs only in races were only allowed to put teams of four into any one race. And the young lads in the Ridley couldn't get a race. So they formed the Gosforth Road Club. And it, it took its colours, actually, which I'm wearing today. Um, Orange, very white and green. And... Green. Okay. and, and it took it, those colours from Gosworth Urban District Council and the badge is actually Gosworth Urban District Council as well, the, the club badge. So we started on club runs. Um, there was, a, there was a, a few other clubs at the time that were pretty vibrant around the time the Gosworth was formed or just after. For example, the Barnsbury CC. Now, the Barnsbury CC was named after... That was the street they used to meet in, in Biker, Barnsbury Road, and that's how the Barnsbury got its name. The Tyne Electric, who were electricians from Swan Hunters, um, and that was how that club got its name. We had the Tyne Olympic, and then some clubs would try and use continental names, so we had things like the Tyne Velo, um, and, and there was... There was a myriad of clubs at the time, uh, some of them pretty big, but it was all about long social rides in the winter and then racing in the summer. So I started the race as a, a schoolboy at the age of 14. So this is when you're, you're learning the roads of Northumberland, basically. Yeah, You've been taken yeah. out into the wild. Yeah, we, we used to have a guy in the club then. Um, um, Spud Tate and, and Spud would have a map in his back pocket and we would go where we were riding and he'd get us to to remember pubs around where we were riding he'd mark it on the and you'd learn all of these roads there was no obviously no satin halves there was no garments no Strava I don't know I still don't use Strava um, there was nothing like that and you just um, you got on and you went down roads I wonder where this goes. All oh, right, this comes here, right there. And it got ingrained into you every single road in Northumberland. Not just Northumberland, but Durham as well. Um, and you knew exactly where to go, how long it would take, the distances between every every road, or every village, or 
you know, Peter, I've only just noticed that that looks quite new. There's like a, a green cycle strip on this major roundabout at the airport. And potentially that's to do with, the, you get cyclists here on the well, cyclone. Well, the, 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 yes, you do. But that, that, that bit of strip actually is the most farcical thing I've ever seen. It is. It's, it's ridiculous. I've never seen it before and it's crazy. But still, it's, it's there. So that's... that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, I, along with one of the other members out of the Gosworth, I rode the Tour of Ireland when, when I just turned 20 in 1967 um, and continued to race through university and, and continue on. What were you doing at university, Peter? Um, what subject? Well, I actually originally trained to be a teacher. After being a teacher for a few years, I went back to uni again on secondment. And it, by then there was a, a degree in, in education, so I did a Bachelor of Education. <coughs> yeah, the, the, the club itself, it went through a period by, by the early, yeah, the, the, the very early 70s. The, the teenagers who had been in the club together um, had all decided to, oh, for various reasons, give it up. Um, or others went to join other clubs and some of the older ones just packed in. And at one point, I was the only member of the Gosworth Road Club for a number of years and kept it going. Hang on, Peter, there's a big truck behind yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And I cut over to David. David, take it away. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. So we've now come through Pontealand. We are away from the road. Well, the road that we just left is basically the road that's going to go up to Scotland. So this road here will, in theory, be slightly less busy. Should have slightly fewer irate motorists as we get past uh, the little town of Pontealand. So Peter, you were telling us about your teaching career before we came through Pontealand there and we had stopped uh, talking. So where had you got up to on your teaching career then? Is it still in Newcastle? Well, I started, <laughs> I started my teaching career teaching in northwest Alberta, teaching Indians, Blackfoot Indians and Eskimos and you name it, up, okay, up so northern that's Alberta. That, while while you were out there, you like, you'd, you'd emigrated or? Um, I, technically, I immigrated as a landed Canadian immigrant, but I was only out there for just over a year because I couldn't ride the bike during the winter. I, I was still a, still a member of the Gosworth. Um, but um, I, uh, yeah, I used to, I, my mother used to send out my cycling weekly every week in the post. I used to get it about two weeks later. Um, and um, yeah, so I taught out there for a, just over a year. And then I came back, I, was, oh, okay, I, I actually went over to the east of Canada to meet my brother, but he decided to go to Australia. Bit of a long story there. But um, yeah, then I went from there. Um, and then in the UK, I taught at um, various schools in Newcastle. I mean, I was head of, head of biology at Wallbottle, Wallbottle East. Um, and then in 77, my brother had come back from Australia 
and decided to change in direction and we opened a restaurant and some health food shops in Newcastle which were way ahead of their time at the time in what we did called Country Fair and people still remember them. We had a quite reasonable little empire, shops around Newcastle, Gosworth, Jesmond, big restaurant the centre of Newcastle, had that and then we sold that up and um, brother went off to, well I think he went off to America at that point. Um, I put money into buying M steel cycles because that's where I, I learned a lot of a, my craft about working on bikes when I was a kid because I worked for Jeff Dobson at Steels when I was a young teenager. So this bike shop no longer exists, we better explain now. It, it failed just a few years ago, but yeah. it had been going since the 1890s. It's yeah, a very, yeah. very old shop. Well, yeah, originally it was, it was, it was a, the name M. Steel. It was a guy called Matthew Steel, who was a, a track rider at the turn of the century. And a guy called Jeff Dobson Jeff bought it in the, it would have been the very, well, the late 50s actually, after he came out the raft. And I, I started to work there as a kid on a Saturday when I was about 15, because that's where we used to go to get our cycling stuff. So, and, and, and moved various places, but um, yeah, it's no longer there. But I, I came out from, as I say, after we'd sold the restaurants and, and the health food shops. Yeah. And then I, um, I put money into buying M Steels because Jeff wanted to, and I, I went into business with Davey H and Joe Off, and we set up a factory building frames. Um, and, and had the retail side and I ran the retail side. And then in, in 86, um, I was headhunted by um, Errol Drew at Madison to go, to go and really set up the, the Shimano side of it in the UK. So he was Freewheel. He was the guy who set up Freewheel. He then left eventually for America, and I believe he's still in the industry. Is he Delta Corporation? That's right, he's got Delta Corporation. Yeah. Edel, Edel started off, him and Brian Stewart, started off with a, a second-hand bike shop um, in yeah. West Hampstead. No, no, freewheel. Was it freewheel? It was oh. freewheel, yeah, yeah. And um, he, um, they both come from LSE, London School of Economics. And... Although Brian was an accountant, he actually did all the design work. So when they had the freewheel shop, they started a, a small catalogue of stuff to sell, not online, but to sell through the catalogue. Um, and they started to import stuff from the, the UK, uh, sort of from the US. Blackburn, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and they started to do a lot of their own branding. They would rebrand stuff. Very innovative in the way that they did that. Aztec? Yeah, Aztec. Yeah, yeah. Red S. Yeah, new track. Lots of, lots of stuff like that. And once they got free wheel going, they then opened a, a wholesale side of the business. Um, and in 86, Middlemores had been the Shimano importers for the UK, but we're doing, they didn't have the clout to do it very well, and Errol persuaded Shimano that he could do a better job. And this is still when Suntour and Shimano were probably equal uh, No, Suntour would be bigger than Shimano in the UK at the time. Suntour bigger? Yeah, yeah, far bigger. I mean, Suntour provided all rally with all their bikes with them, were on Suntour. Um, Ron Kitchen was the, the importer and he was a very astute operator, was Ron. Yeah. Um, and um, so they took, so, so when Madison, it wasn't, when they opened the, the, the wholesale side of it, they decided to call it Madison after Madison Square Gardens where the first six day racing took part. Um, and I went to work for them in 86. I mean, I was there nearly 20 years.
We're a pretty small company at those days, relatively turned over about a million pound a year. By the time I left, it was, like, <laughs> I think, about 60, 70 million a year. So you were Shimano man for a while, weren't you? Yeah, Literally, your, 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 I wouldn't say job title, but you were like branded as a Shimano man. Yes, <laughs> very much so. And what was that? What was Shimano man? Yeah, well, I was in charge of all the technical side, arranging the, the products and doing trade shows. Um, I mean, a jack of all trades at the time, um, working on events. And of course, that sort of morphed into working on major, major events and liaising directly with Shimano Europe. And by this time, Shimano is rapidly accelerating past Suntour. Suntour is becoming very small. And so Madison stroke freewheel is basically riding that wave. I mean, this is a global phenomenon that's oh, yeah, happened yeah. and they're riding that wave. They, they've got the right brand at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And you have Shimano, as you know now, you've got Shimano, you're the, you're the leading distributor because everybody needs Shimano. Yeah, I mean, Raleigh still had some um, and um, Teddy Balls, my old CEO, sadly now dead. Teddy and I, I took because I knew everybody in the industry, or a lot of people in the industry, um, from retail one thing or another. And I took Terry to, to, to meet Raleigh and to various other people. And, um, you know, gradually got a stronger and stronger hold on Shimano in the UK because at first the agreement Shimano had with, um, with Madison and Raleigh was that Raleigh would handle all the low end stuff and that Madison would only have the middle and high end stuff. But we gradually weaned them away from that. And of course, having been associated with bikes all the time and, and interested in the technical side, I wanted to, us to be not just distributors of the product, but provide that technical backup. And that was why um, we well, I, I sort of was it the, 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 the leading person, for want of a better word, on this. But this is how we actually set up the Shimano service centers um, to, make, to make dealers uh, have that technical knowledge and expertise. So set up the, the Shimano service centers and roll that out through the UK to competent dealers who had already been going to see and somebody who I knew from our racing days and everything else. And um, then we took it, um, and of course that's now been rolled out around Europe and further. And then you left Madison? Yeah. Where did you go from there? Well, what, what happened was I was doing technical training because I actually, myself and a couple of other people in the UK, um, created the, the SciTech qualification for cycle mechanics. I used my expertise as an ex-teacher um, outside of it. So that was Albert Shucksmith? Yes. From, uh, the, from the Association of Cycle Traders, one of them? Yeah. I was doing the technical training side of it um, and when it became an NVQ and Terry, Terry Bowl decided that I should do part of the work for at Madison and part at um, and part with the Aylesbury training group uh, as a trainer and assessor. Yeah. Um, I sort of had to live with it. I wouldn't say I was particularly happy about it, but I had to live with it. So I did that for a few years. And then um, traveling around the UK trying to train certain mechanics who weren't that interested in businesses that weren't particularly interested, they just wanted the qualification. Um, I got out of actively doing that about 12 years ago now. Um, and psychological, the cycle shop came up for grabs for a number of reasons. And um, so I just, I bought that. But by this time, of course, I was, I was over 60. And then 59, 60. And had the business run it under, had it running under management to begin with. Wasn't happy with the way it was going. Took control back on there. And then of course, 
in 2011, by which time I'd already created the cyclone. It had been going for four years, so I was very much um, involved with that. And then, of course, I had a, a major crack. Yeah, tell us about that, because that was a, a brawl on a, on a, yeah, on a, a dealer trip. I was actually, yes, I was on a, uh, a dealer trip to the old beer factory because yeah. uh, we were distributing the old beer. And we are on a big descent. We were on bikes from the factory. Now, whether it was because I wasn't particularly used to that bike. Where was this? Um, just outside Bilbao in the, right. in the Basque country. Yeah. And I, um, I'd always been known as a very fast descender when I was a racing cyclist very fast in fact the next world champion said I was a bloody maniac um he didn't quite use those words but he said I was very fast and the bike I was on and we don't know why and nobody knows why to this day it happens but the bike went into a speed wobble when I was doing 60 miles an hour consequently I came off and ended up in intensive care in Bilbao you had a lot of broken bones, didn't you? 30. 30 broken bones. So you're in hospital across there and then you were medi back out or? No, I was, in, I was in intensive care in Bilbao. I was flown back to the UK. I was in the RVI for several months. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd fractured two vertebrae in my neck, shattered my collarbone, 21 breaks in my ribs and broke my pelvis in two places. So I did a pretty good job of it. And without wishing to say too much, but at that age, there are pretty major injuries at that age. So, looking on the bright side, the fact that you're a dead fit cyclist probably helped you anyway. Yeah. And recovery. Yeah, it, it certainly did. Um, and I've also had this, I suppose I will to, to do things. Um, and get back from injuries. I mean, when I played rugby, I was used to injuries. As a racing cyclist, and I did race for 20, well, on the road, I raced for 23 years. So, quite used to injuries, yeah. And then <laughs> I raced as a, as a veteran when mountain bikes first came in, um, in the days of rigid forks. And we, mountain bike races in those days were about three hours long. And um, we're rigid forks, and I raced at national level four years of that as a veteran, but then found that I had to train as much as when I'd been training as a youngster for the road. But I raced the track as well, I mean, I rode tracks like lacrosse. So you're dead fit, you're still going out on the rides on the Gosworth every, every weekend. Your fitness probably helped you with the crash, even though the crash was caused by cycling. Um, but that can't have been very good for your business, in that no, if you're no, like you know, up in a hospital for a while. For about four years, I couldn't do anything in the business. In fact, I couldn't get rid of it because I wasn't there. Um, I had to have stuff in. It hemorrhaged money for a number of years. We're, we've gone through a pretty lean patch. Um, well, the whole industry's been through a pretty lean patch, Peter. It's, it's been a rough three years oh, for everybody. Very, very rough. And in actual fact, that's one of the reasons, of course, as you know, some why some have gone down, um, some of the bigger chains. I mean, I used to carry <coughs> about 100 bikes in stock. I think I've got four in stock now. I get them into order. But the one thing that, of course, that Parts of the industry, such as online, cannot do it. They cannot repair your bike. Yeah. So is that the mainstay of your business? Uh, yeah, now, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're talking about quite technical stuff. I mean, just recently did a course on um, um, the Shimano Steps, e-bikes, um, do bike fitting, um, DI2 diagnostics, um, all of this stuff, still, I still get people in the industry, particularly on some of the older stuff, phoning me up and asking me, how, how about this, how do you do this, or was that compatible? Or that well, that's the first thing you asked me this morning, when you, when you turned up 
and you saw me on this bike so I'm on a specialized diverge that specializer very kindly sent me and the first thing you asked me it wasn't like hi Carlton how you do it was like so what does that blah, blah, blah. so he was asking us technical questions about the particular uh, hydraulic brakes I've got on here and of course I'm an absolute Luddite when it comes to mending bikes I don't mend bikes I give it to a bike shop I, I make you I make bike shops money Peter I'm the ideal customer oh yeah 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 um and I mean you know my workshops are some of the well both at home and at work are some of the best equipped around and I'm always getting to I'll go for the latest tools and make sure I've got the best. So is that the saviour for the bike industry in that you've got to have the specialist tools? You can't, a lot of stuff you can't do at home. No, no. You know, you can if you're absolutely, you've got to invest in tons of stuff and then the, you know, the latest bottom bracket standard comes out. You're stuffed as a home consumer doing these things, whereas a bike shop's got to invest in everything. Well, to give you some idea, my tools, and this is, apart from things like the cabinets and the benches and the, the compressor, stuff like this. I've got about 25,000 quid's worth of tools in the shop. I mean, some of the tools are over a thousand quid. What's a thousand quid? What's a tool that's a thousand quid? Um, some of the bottom bracket taps, the taps and faces. Yeah, so I mean, the, the tooling's an integral part of it. Um, and of course, the knowledge how to use it. It's no good having, you know, and what always makes me laugh is I get people coming in the shop on a regular, pretty regular basis. Oh, I've done this and it didn't work. But instead, this is how you do it on YouTube. And I go, all oh, right, right, fine. YouTube's one of my greatest allies because people are always going to destroy things watching amateurs showing what to do, different jobs on YouTube. Um, I mean, there are some good YouTube ones from people like Park showing you how to officially use their tools. But a lot of people won't want to buy those tools, as I say, because they're very expensive. Um, and and then, of course, the, the latest technology, and I mean, I'm just looking at your bike there now. You've got internal cable routing for your, your hydraulic brakes. Now, Joe Public, knowing how to, first of all, re-put a new hose in there if it gets damaged, first of all, they've got to have the tools to be able to feed the hoses through and know where to go and how to do it then they've got to have the tools to actually um refit the, the calipers and the pistons etc and how to bleed the brakes and the reason i was asking about those brakes this morning was because the brakes that you've got on there used to be what they called a closed system using dot four fluid which i believe they still are but shimano is an open system using mineral oil and there's a whole load of health implications particularly with the dot fluids using them um, because they are highly corrosive that's what you call it got in car braking systems open systems are easier to work with and um, but shimano had have got patents on a lot of that stuff so other manufacturers have had to develop their own systems. As I say, some of them um, closed systems. I mean, the old Avid ones, absolutely horrendous to work on, doing a reverse bleed with two, two sets of uh, injection systems, just um, absolutely different syringes. So there's, there's a lot to know there what to do. Um. So the more tech that bikes get, it's harder for consumers, but better for bike shops. Yeah, and this is the way that the independents have got to go, or the ones who are in the savvy. But does that not also make it that consumers go, oh, sod that, it's too difficult now? Or do you think it's like cars? Well. People just do not know how to do a car. They're quite happy putting it into a garage. That's the way it's got to go. Well, yeah. I mean, if you've, if you've bought a, you know, let's face it, a two or three thousand pound bike, which isn't uncommon now, and something goes wrong, you don't go, oh, I'll just chuck it away. If it's a 200 quid bike, yes. 
but not a 2,000 quid bike. And a bit like your car, you don't go, I'm not using it because I don't know what to do. And I can't fix it. You get it fixed. And of course, a lot of people think that having a bike repaired should be cheap. Yeah. Whereas, you know, they'll pay 50 quid for someone just to come out and look at your washing machine. Never mind do anything to it. But people pay cars, they don't seem to mind the expertise that, that car mechanics are supposed to have. And yet they look down their noses, some people do, not everybody, at bicycle mechanics as, well, you can't be as, as proficient, so I shouldn't be spending 50 quid an hour for this. So you, you're going to have that for a long time or do you think well, that'll change? That's it. It's an interesting comment, that, an observation, because car mechanics now, for the most part, yes, you call them mechanics, but a lot of them are just maintenance guys that replace a whole unit. Whereas with bikes, because of the mix and match, that's the school there where the, the cakes are gone from. Um, when it's mix and match, then the bike mechanic has got to work out whether it's compatible, if it does work, if it doesn't work, why? All of these problems he's got to solve. Car mechanics don't do that. If the computer says no in a car in a garage, then the mechanic goes, don't know what to do. Whereas a bike shop, you cannot plug your, well, you can for your DI2 diagnostics, but you cannot plug in your bike to find out that your hanger is bent in two mils or that the chain, that you've got a 10 speed chain because you've been clever, I thought you've been clever, and put a 10-speed chain on a 9-speed system and wonder why it doesn't work. Or, more often than not, I've only had this chain on three years. Yes, sir. I've only had this chain on three years. Why are the gears jumping? Surely chains should last forever. But if you said to a car, somebody, in a garage, if they say your cam belt needs changing at so many miles, you go, okay, fine. It has to be done. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, bike mechanics are, are undervalued. Thanks there to Peter Harrison. You can get more information on the Cyclone Festival of Cycling at cyclonecycling.com. The 2020 event takes place over a weekend at the very end of June. Thanks to you for listening to today's show. There are 236 others in our gargantuan back catalogue. Subscribe in your favourite podcast catcher to get all future shows. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.